Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 53, Night by Ellie Wiesel. What is it even coming back now? Difficult? It's time I come. I, I try not to speak for, for, for a day or two or three. And just to go back and find the silence that was in me then. And I say to myself, how many of us did not live? And simply vanished. Look, look at this place. Mm. The immensity of the place. It's a universe. And when you think of the numbers, a million, a million and a half people, just think country that or a city that has a million and a half inhabitants and simply vanishes. And so I think of that. I come here and try to see the invisible and try to hear the inaudible. And I always see what I had seen the last time I was here. Do you think that the ground speak, it carries its own energy here? It has the voices of the dead, do you think? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm convinced of that, that they, some, some voices are still here. Mm-hmm. I think the souls are here. I think that they listen, they cry, they warn. Look, this is the largest cemetery in recorded history. And what do you see? Nothing. Nothing. But uh, the cemetery is in our heart.
Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we take a thorough look at one piece of literature we've both read and determine if it is, well, required reading. I'm Tom Panneries, and uh, joining me as always for this look at Elie Wiesel's Holocaust memoir is my co-host, Stella. How are you today? I'm doing well, yeah. I suppose I, this book it would be inappropriate to have like I, a wacky. I intro could not go for the jokey introduction. No. no. Yeah, but no, I, I'm doing well, and I'm looking forward to talking about this really important work. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so we are doing night. Um, this is my selection. Um, it is a. Uh, it is one of the. I would say, if you're a high school student in America. It's very likely you've read one of two or maybe both of these two works that directly address the Holocaust, Knight or Anne Frank's The Diary of a Young Girl, which totally just coincidentally happens to be sitting right under my copy of Knight in the stack of books that I have blocking my mic from my computer fan. So I own both of them. Um, but yeah, so those are the two that tend to get taught in high school. And we're going to be explore uh, Weissel's memoir, which has been printed and reprinted and praised over, over time. And uh, the first thing we usually do when we look at a book is talk about what our history is with it. So um, I I do have a quite a bit of history with this book. So I, I'll go with you, Stella. What is uh, what is your history with with Knight and with, or with Ilie Wiesel uh, himself? Yeah, I'm trying to think when I first read it. It might have been my third or second year teaching because I remember borrowing it from my English teacher friend, Sarah, you know, shout out to Sarah Rodriguez <laughs> at the, the school that I was teaching at. And I don't recall if it was on Rory Gilmore's reading list. It might be. I should have looked that up before I came on because I was thinking about that before. But I was also trying to read the things that the eighth graders were reading since that's primarily whom I was teaching. Hmm. And also every year we went to D.C. And I think that first year, I mean, the Holocaust Museum was always on the the itinerary. And I think even though the quote is there, I think it's by all the shoes. Um, I didn't recognize the significance of it. Like I, I just saw that there was this quote and then it had his name, of course. And then after I read it and then the next year going to the Holocaust Museum, I think was even more profound, uh, just better understanding the significance of that quote and, and what he had gone through. And I think putting um, perhaps a more personal perspective on the experience, because as much as I can really throw myself emotionally into that museum, I think having his voice and really following somebody's journey through that added an, an even uh, deeper level of, of compassion and understanding of, of what the Holocaust was because it wasn't just, you know, strangers. I, I felt like I knew just from his experience, oh man, you know, this is what he was going through at that time. So that was first, my first time reading it. And then of course the Holocaust Museum. And then this would have been my 
guess my second time reading it. And I don't know if it's a different version. I mean, it says it's a different version, but I, I can't remember which version it was that I, I read. So at least twice. And then I would, I would at least like to say that the Holocaust Museum, I think, is part of the history of this novel memoir as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I just back it up a little bit. Um, how much did you know about the Holocaust kind of going into your first time reading it or your first mm. like like if you if you reflect on your education and history, et cetera, like how much did you learn about it and, and the details of what actually went on in the Holocaust and in Nazi Germany? Um, and I'm trying to think about what year that would be that I learned about them. World War Two. Uh, I, I think I was definitely aware of it. So it was mm-hmm. taught. I'm trying to think which year it was taught. It's definitely not junior. Well, I guess junior with a push. Um, and then it probably would have been, I think I would have known about it earlier on as well. And I think I knew of Anne Frank Mm -hmm. earlier as well. And I remember they made that TV movie. So I was aware of her. And I remember when Schindler's List came out, I wasn't allowed to watch it (laughs) by my parents. But yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's really spotty, but I do remember being told or taught about the Holocaust. I don't mm-hmm. know. I almost wish I could go back in time and, and see what that was like to be taught it yeah. and what that experience was like. Um, because now I, I think it's really important <laughs> to talk about it because we're, we're getting so far away from it mm-hmm. and we're losing survivors. Yeah. If you're lucky listeners, if you go up to the Holocaust museum, sometimes survivors are there and they'll, talk to you and answer questions but yeah so experience wise i think i knew of it let's just Mm -hmm. say that i knew of it i think i was taught it but i don't know if i had as much of an emotional connection beyond the oh my goodness that's terrible but i think now that i've i'm more mature and i really understand what that was like and and reading literature and things like that just with like any experience i think that's going on currently you know reading more i think you start to understand oh my gosh this was way worse than just being told da 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 da, da. but yeah and, and through film i think i think i learned a lot through media like uh it's a beautiful life i think that was the, i remember seeing that a couple times in theaters mm-hmm. and um there was one i think with Am I wrong that it was um, Robin Williams was in one? I could be wrong. But anyways, I I think that was honestly primarily my education was through film where perhaps probably my mother, just because they probably would have been artsier independent films, would have taken me to see something. And so get it grasping or getting a better understanding of, of what the Holocaust was for media, which I don't know if that's good or bad because of course media, you know, skews things, but you hope that they would have uh, a good presentation and it's still, it's still ongoing, which is good. I'm thinking about, um, 
the what is it the oh, the book stealer that is not the, it the, the book, book thief. thief yeah yeah that's a good book yeah. that's a good book or you know even Jojo Rabbit you know mm-hmm. has it so it's still it's still ongoing and and perhaps it is good that that media has infiltrated because if our educational system is letting us down it's really bad that I'm remembering more about the films and things that I've watched mm-hmm. rather than what I learned in school so at least something is is helping us out. Yeah, you're, uh, the movie you were thinking of is Jacob the Liar from 1999. That's it. Yes, I remember. Yeah, he was helping people out in there. Anyways, yep. Yeah, yeah. No, I just, I just, because I asked because like I, I'm trying to think back as to like what my education regarding just the Holocaust in general was, and and the Holocaust was something that I knew of pretty young. Um, growing up in the New York City area, you would see right around like Holocaust Remembrance Week or month. Um, the occasional, um, like, uh, very brief TV thing where, like, you know, uh, we remember victims of the Holocaust, you know, like with a picture of a candle or something. In the same way that, like, you know, NBC 29 wishes you a Merry Christmas or something, like, you know, Mm. of that vein. So I knew that there was this thing called the Holocaust that had happened. And this is, and I'm talking about, like, when I was young, like, elementary school and I knew that Nazis were bad because I knew of World War II and I knew of mm-hmm. Indiana Jones and stuff and <laughs> and well I mean you know that was like no, the context was entertainment like you're you're talking about movies so that but but I didn't really piece and and um uh, we read Anne Frank in eighth grade and they talked about the whole the whole idea of like you know persecution for being Jewish and then how she died in a concentration camp. And so I knew that a concentration camp was a bad thing, but like had no idea really of the details of what went on in these, in the, in the camps and what really like of it, just, just certain facts that were repeated at me because I don't know, they were on a test or something. So like really did not understand the whole concept of Kristallnacht until like, years later i just i knew that well they called it the night of broken glass and they broke all the glass in the jewish businesses but like that's such an abstract way to put it like if you think about it it's like that it's seriously sounds like something you would fill in the blank on a test and and for years that was like the education i got and then in 10th grade um 10th grade in 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 my high school was a european history course so um so we did and, and we did cover the holocaust and world war ii and we happened to be doing it at the same time that in English we were reading this book, Night. Um, mm-hmm. And it was the first translation. <gasps> Collaboration. Yeah. I think it was just coincidence, to be completely oh, honest really? with you. <laughs> okay. but, but the things that I remember, I remember my English teacher lecturing us about the importance of this. Um, I remembered bits and pieces of it, the book, just, you know, mm-hmm. and, and then I remember watching one of the army films in social studies of the liberation of one of the camps. And, and I would show when I taught night to toss sophomores, I had footage of the Buchenwald, which is the camp that Weissel was liberated from at the end of the book. And Edward, it, it's an, it's a U.S. army, um, DOD um, or Department of War because it was the Department, War Department back then um, film narrated by Edward R. Murrow of like the report of Buchenwald and it was just incredibly graphic footage of 
all these prisoners and here are the crematorium and just this tour of what they had found. And I remember that struck me very, very much because, you know, by 10th grade, like, well, I really should have known more than this. And, um, and, you know, and especially since like right around that time, um, there are a lot, there was a lot of, uh, either below the surface, very casual or, um, even outward, racism, anti-Semitism, and homophobia among people I went to high school with. Mm. And some of them still have it and display it, from what I understand, um, on social media, which is lovely. Um, but I don't know. I, I remember it affected me in a way that, like, it just... it and, and, then I, and then I did visit the Holocaust Museum in 95, I believe. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. It's, it's been a long time. I, I'm due to go back. And I have not been back since the mid nineties, but I, that, I, and I remember, I remember that trip of it, it really feeling moot, but at the same time feeling really overwhelmed, right? Like, like I need to go back again because I just remember trying to take, you, it's a museum like that. You can't take everything in it. If you try, you feel overwhelmed and you're just like, you know, so, um, and then, uh, I had started teaching 10th grade. This is 2010, I think, and um, I wanted to teach this, so I I read it, um, <laughs> and you know it took me I think an afternoon to reread it. I hadn't read it in like almost 20 years, and taught this book for the better part of like eight or nine years to various levels of sophomores, and I really did my best to, and I and I honestly can't tell you if I ever um, succeeded with it. I remember having some conversations with students, um, some of you who had Jewish family members or, or were Jewish themselves, and them talking about the crap they put up with or the crap that they're, you know, the anti-Semitic comments people would make. I threw a few kids out of my class for making anti-Semitic comments. One of my felt colleagues who, um, you know, has, has is no longer with us, she uh, was Jewish, so I would have her come in and just do a Judaism 101 you know, because, mm -hmm. you know, the, the kids of the county where I was teaching, like, you know, I mean, they didn't consider Catholics to be Christians. So, I mean, that's, this is, this is the level of, you know, um, person you're dealing with. So like, you know, to, to have somebody come and say, Hey, I'm Jewish. And, and, you know, this is, this is what Passover is. And this is what keeping kosher is. And this is what my, and her, her family were Holocaust victims and survivors. So talking about that. So that was, um, that was really interesting. That was really, really helpful. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, she, like I said, she's no longer with us, but, but Beth was, you know, one of the best sources for that. And then, and then just, um, you know, years and years of teaching it, I tried to do a deep dive. I would do, the, the, if anybody is really interested in learning about the Holocaust and, and does not have, you know, beyond this book, the, one of the best resources simply is the website for the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. It is, it has, um, video after video of, uh, from like foundations like the Shoah Project where they have just testimonies, recorded testimonies of people, uh, who are survivors and telling their stories. There are, um, multimedia presentations about just like animated maps about like, you know, where all these things were, et cetera, et cetera. And like, there's, there was like a whole, for a while, there was an online exhibit on propaganda. I mean, it was just, it is such a rich resource and I used to use it all the time. And I don't know, it's, it's one of the most important books I've ever taught. 
and so I, I feel like I feel like it's been very um, and and I funny enough because <laughs> the Holocaust is not a topic that you should be excited about teaching, right? You know, mm-hmm. it's not. <laughs> I shouldn't get excited about teaching night the way that I get excited about teaching Frankenstein, right? But I enjoyed teaching it in a way that I felt like I felt its importance and I really tried hard to, um, like, um, respect its gravity. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay, I was searching for the phrasing there. So yeah, so I so I have I have a deep history, and this is the first time. And so I've read it. I've read it like I have probably read this book ten or eleven times at this point. <laughs> you know, maybe even more because of the number of times I've taught it. Um, rereading it for this podcast was the first time I've read it. Is the first time I've read it in probably three or four years, though. So. So it was, it was actually, I'm glad I came back to it. It had been, it had been a while. So, all right. Well, we are going to get into where I am going to get into the background of the author as well as the plot synopsis. So here we go. Ili or Elizer, which is his, his full name, Weisel, was born in Saget, Romania on September 30th, 1928, and lived there until his deportation to Auschwitz, which he details in the book and that we're about to discuss. So most of his um, bio I am going to save for after his liberation from the camp, which is uh, he was eventually liberated, liberated from Buchenwald in Germany, which is near the city of Weimar, by the way. And I will talk about the publication of the history of the book as well. So, so after his liberation from Buchenwald, Weisel did not tor- tell his story for an entire decade. But a conversation in 1954 with Francois Mauriac, a French novelist, changed that. He wrote in Yiddish the manuscript, and the world remained silent, which was originally an 862-page manuscript that was then trimmed to 245 pages for publication. The book was then further edited to be published in France as La Nuit and in English as Night. And I believe our page count on this edition is... 115, it starts on page 3, so you're talking about 113 or 112 pages. It is a very slim volume. Night was a slow success. According to the book's Wikipedia page, Weissel's New York agent, Georges Borchardt, encountered the same difficulty finding a publisher in the United States that he had that he had in other countries. In 1960, Arthur Wang of Hill and Wang, New York, which still publishes the book, um, who and who Weisel writes believed in literature as others believe in God, paid a $100 pro forma advance and published that that year a 116-page English translation by Stella Rodway as Night. The first 18 months of sales sold saw only 1,046 copies sell at $3 each. It took three years to sell the first print run of 3,000 copies, but the book attracted interest from reviewers, leading to television interviews and meetings with literary figures like Saul Bellow. 
By 1997, Knight was selling 300,000 copies a year in the United States. By 2011, it had sold 6 million copies in that country and was available in 30 languages. Sales increased in January 2006 when it was chosen for Oprah's Book Club. Republished with a new translation by Marion Weisel, Weisel's wife, and a new preface by Weisel, it sat at number one in the New York Times bestseller list for paperback nonfiction for 18 months from the 13th of February 2006 until the paper removed it when a significant portion of sales were ascribed to educational usage rather than retail. It became the club's third bestseller to date with over 2 million sales of the book club edition by May of 2011. Night is the first in a trilogy of Night, Dawn, and Day. Um, I have read neither of those and I kind of mean to check them out, so I may. <laughs> Marking Weisel's transition during and after the Holocaust from darkness to light, according to the Jewish tradition of beginning a new day at nightfall. In night, he said, I wanted to show the end, the finality of the event. Everything came to an end. Man, history, re literature, religion, God. There was nothing left. And yet we begin again with night. Over the course of his career, Weissel published 57 books, and he became a professor at Boston University. He was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1986 and the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1992. He eventually established the Ilya Wiesel Foundation for Humanity, which according to its website, the foundation's mission rooted in the memory of the Holocaust is to combat indifference, intolerance, and injustice through international dialogue and youth-focused programs that promote acceptance, understanding, and equality. The international conferences of the Ilivizel Foundation for Humanity serve as a catalyst for change and action. The conferences, which focus on the themes of peace, education, health, and the environment, and terrorism, serve to bring together Nobel laureates and world leaders to discuss social problems and develop suggestions for change. The Foundation hosted its inaugural conference, Facing the 21st Century Threats and Promises, in 1988, gathering 79 Nobel laureates in Paris. The conference paved the way for a series of conferences including The Anatomy of Hate, Tomorrow's Leaders, The Future of Hope, and the Petra Conferences of Nobel Laureates. In the United States, the Foundation has for 27 years offered the Ethics Essay Contest, which challenges college juniors and seniors to analyze the urgent ethical issues confronting them in today's complex world. Um, I've personally helped a couple of students with essays for that over the years. And for more than 20 years, the Foundation operates two Beit Zipporah Centers for Study and Enrichment in Israel. These centers in Ashkelon and Kiryat Malachi and I apologize for butchering these uh, names here, focus on educating the Ethiopian Jewish community and giving Ethiopian Israeli students the opportunity to participate fully in Israeli society. Close to 1,000 boys and girls are currently enrolled in after-school programs that serve as a model for other schools. Weisel passed away on July 2, 2016 at the age of 87 in Manhattan. So that is a little bit of just where he went after uh, this experience. And we're going to get into his experience. Uh, this is a memoir. So this is, you know, a, as, as we've said, a, a true story of his of his time um, during the Holocaust. Now, it begins in his hometown of Saget in Romania in uh, 1941. And um, Saget is in Transylvania. And uh, this, at the time, was actually under Hungarian control. And while the war had been gone on, going on for two years at this point, the town had been pretty much spared much of the conflict. 
Eliza. And um, I'm going to, for the sake of differentiating between the person in the book and the author of the book, mm -hmm. um, I tend to use Eliza um, as his uh, or Eliza, or I just say Eliza as his name when we're talking about the person in the book. But I say Vizel when I'm talking about the writer. It just it, it's just a way for me to um, to differentiate it um, anyway. He is almost 13. He is a very devout student of Judaism, so much so that he is interested in going beyond the basic studies of the Talmud and the Torah explore, toward exploring mysticism, better known as Kabbalah, which anybody from my generation will remember as that's what Madonna really got into around the time Ray of Light came out. Um, but it is an actual Jewish mysticism practice uh, that's, you know, not some celebrity, you know, fad or trend is she still involved with that i don't know i probably okay. not <laughs> I, knowing knowing like, knowing wow, the way celebrities yeah knowing again, knowing the, the way celebrities tend to do any religion other than scientology she probably faded out or or it or it evolved into something else so i, I don't know mm. um anyway a little bit of levity there before I get into this. So he's aided in his studies by a man who is known only only as Moisha the Beadle, B-A-D-L-E. Mm. And a beadle, by the way, is an assistant level officer of a church. I guess I'm trying to think of what the Christian equivalents would be, like a victor, uh, like a victor, like a vicar or a deacon or something, you know, mm. not a rabbi or a priest or a pastor, but somebody who all but is somebody who is an officer of the church just at a assistant level you know so um anyway this is much to the dismay of his father shlomo who is a well-respected shopkeeper in the community he thinks that his son is moving a little too fast with his studies but while he advises him against studying mysticism uh his father does not outright forbid it said studies only last so long however as in 1942 the hungarian police deport all the foreign jews from saget and that includes moisha sometime later moisha returns with a dire story and a warning he and the other deportees were taken beyond the hungarian border and then turned over to the germans they were forced to dig a ditch lined up and shot en masse moisha survived because he'd been shot in the leg and he played dead once the coast was clear, he returned to Saget to warn everybody. Unfortunately, they all think he's crazy. And they also think that they're safe because the news from the front is that the German defeat at the hands of the Soviets is definitely going to happen. And it's only a matter of time. And this is not too far-fetched thinking, by the way. Stalingrad had already occurred. The Red Army was clearly on the offensive in 1942 and was making significant headway throughout 1943. But... And this is something that Stella and I will get into when we do our you know, discussion. This is one of about four or five warnings or opportunities that Weissel, his family, and the town have before they are eventually deported to Auschwitz in 1944. There's talk at one point about getting their papers in order and immigrating to Palestine, which was still possible. But Eliza's father says he's too old to move and start over in another country. At one point, a family member comes back from Budapest and tells them about how bad the anti-Semitic sentiment is throughout Hungary and how the hate crimes are only getting worse. And they kind of blow him off. The other two uh, incidents occur after the Germans arrive and the Jews in Saget have been rounded up into the ghetto. And those are that their former housekeeper, Maria, offers the family a place to hide out as well as a point 
and, and there's also a point where a police officer friend of Elias's father knocks on their window to warn them about the impending deportation, but they can't get their window open in time uh, to hear said warning. But speaking of the Germans, the Nazis arrive in Saget and are nice at first, even befriending some of the locals. This lasts until about after the Passover celebration in 1944, when they become, well, they become the Nazis that we all know. They become more authoritarian in tone. They begin tightening the restrictions on the Jews. They eventually put them into ghettos and begin the gradual deportation to concentration camps throughout Eastern Europe. Eliezer and his family are one of the last to be deported, so they are witness to a number of people saying their final goodbyes to the town. And they are even moved from one ghetto in Saget to a smaller one. When deportation arrives, it is a horrific ordeal of being made to wait in the temple that the Nazis have completely defiled. And then line up um, out in the hot sun. Worn down, they passively march under orders to a train where they were loaded into cattle cars. They are shoved together on this train, and while they are traveling to an unknown destination... A woman, Madame Schachter, keeps screaming about seeing smoke and flames. This upsets her young son, and it also annoys everybody around them. She quiets down, but then begins screaming again at various times and is beaten for it. However, this proves to be a premonition, because the train eventually pulls into a station and they see the smoke from the crematorium trimini at Birkenau. This was the front of the Auschwitz camp complex. It's sometimes referred to as Auschwitz II. Um, Auschwitz, by the way, it, it's like several small camps in one gargantuan campus of camps. So it's, it is, um, it's one of the reasons, uh, it's so famous is because it was so enormous. It also happened to have survived the end of the war. In other words, the Nazis could not blow it up before the Soviets liberated it and they didn't have to burn it down. Um, some of the other camps they actually had to burn down because there were such bad outbreaks of things like cholera and, and, you know, typhus and things like that, you know, like diseases that were spreading that the only thing they could do was after they, um, evacuated and treated the people, just set the whole thing on fire so that the disease wouldn't spread. Anyway, so they arrive at, they arrive at Auschwitz. Um, this particular part of Auschwitz is used as a prisoner of war camp originally, but it was also, uh, became, home to three crematoria and therefore became the um, processing center of sorts for Jewish prisoners. And the process I'm referring to is known as selection. This is where an SS officer or doctor examines the prisoners and determines if they are fit to live. Immediately upon arrival at Birkenau, Eliezer and his father are separated from his mother and his younger sister, Zipporah, when the men are told to line up on the left of the crowd and the women on the right. And while Weisel's two older sisters would survive the war and would eventually be reunited with their brother, his mother and Zipporah would not, as they were executed and cremated on that very day. And the image that he's actually left with of the two um, are... While he's walking away from his mother, she's stroking his sister's um, hair and uh, as if to protect her is how he phrases it. Almost immediately after this, Eliza bears witness to the horrors that his people are facing. He sees pits full of bodies, babies, in fact, as well as the crematorium and fears that he is going to die. 
However, he is not because he has taken the advice of an experienced inmate and lied about his age and occupation to the SS. He says that he's 18 and that he's a farmer. He will wind up getting put to work, as will his father. In fact, he goes to great lengths to throughout his initial time at Auschwitz to make sure that he and his father bunk together and are put on the same work detail. He is also tattooed with the number A7713. From here, the book is a series of episodes about his time in Auschwitz and the Auschwitz III Monowitz, or Buna, labor camp. This is where he is forced to work in a factory as well as endures beatings from the block leaders and other higher-ranking prisoners and guards, and I'll highlight a few. So there is Stein, a distant relative of his, who comes running into up to them and asks about his family. Uh, Eliza lies and says that, well, their family's okay from what he understands, thinking that'll keep Stein's hopes up. However, Stein stops coming to see them because it's obvious that he eventually learns the truth. Various people, including a dentist and Franek, their uh, block foreman, try to take his gold tooth because the Nazis were confiscating anything that was of precious metal. It was a commodity in the camp. Eidek, a capo, being mentally unstable and flying into fits of rage, which meant beating anyone who happened to be in his way. Eliza's father falls victim to this, which Eliza watches passively to his own disgust. Eliza does this, uh, does fall victim to this as well, and after which he is comforted by a French Jewish girl who is posing as a forced labor prisoner of Aryan descent, and whom years later he says what he would run into in, on the metro in Paris. His father uh, gets beaten because he can't march in place, and Elijah has to try to teach him, much to the ridicule of the fellow inmates. And then there's an incident where Eidek rearranges the entire block's work schedule so he can have sex with a girl in the <laughs> factory, only to be walked in on by Eliza, who gets beaten for it. And it's okay to chuckle, at least at that first part, because it, even Eliza laughs at that. It's, it's one of the few comic relief moments in the book, even though it ends up with him getting whipped. Um, but, like, he walks in on them, and then he realizes that this guy rearranged their entire work schedule so he could... He uses the word copulate in yeah. the translation, but it's just like, and he, and he says he ends up laughing and that's what gets him in trouble. So anyway, there are also some people he meets during his time. Uh, Juliet, the violinist, Yossi and TB twins who are as devout as he is. And while the conditions are obviously horrific, they seem to make what they can of it, at least so that they can endure and keep on living and working and not be sent to the, uh, not be selected and not be sent to the showers or the crematoria. As time gets on, the front gets closer, and that means that the camp is subject to air raids. During one of them, a prisoner leaves the cover of the barracks and crawls toward an unguarded cauldron of soup, only to be shot just as he is about to eat some of it. And then there are the two hangings that Eliza is forced to witness after um, other air raids. One of them is of a young prisoner who stole during the air raid, after which the prisoners eat, and he says that their soup, quote, tasted better than ever. The other is of three prisoners, including young, a young boy. Uh, they are there for trying to get an insurrection together. They've been stealing weapons and such. And the young boy is too light for the gallows. He winds up being strangled to death instead of having his neck snapped when he's hanged. Witnessing this slow, agonizing death causes Eliza to comment that that night the soup tasted of corpses. 
Auschwitz eventually does get evacuated, uh, but before this happens, Eliza gets a terrible infection in his foot, and he has to get surgery to fix it. He is lucky that it was just a matter of draining the foot and no amputation was required. Furthermore, he is lucky to have a couple of weeks to recuperate in the hospital. As he's recuperating, the camp is to be evacuated because of the approaching Soviet army. The SS tells the patients in the hospital that they will be left behind, and Elijah's father leaves the decision to stay in the hospital and trust that the Nazis will not kill them all before leaving the camp or go with evacuation. And he leaves it up to Eliza. Eliza chooses to evacuate. He doesn't trust the Nazis to, for their word to say, well, we're just going to leave you behind. And this proves to be the wrong decision. Two days after the evacuation, the Soviets liberate Auschwitz. So having chosen evacuation, the Jews gather their meager belongings and they leave, but not before being forced to clean up the barracks and begin and then they begin their death march to Gleiwitz. This is where they will board a train that will eventually take them to Buchenwald. This death march is roughly 40 miles in total in the snow. Those prisoners who fall behind are shot by SS officers. Those who start to lag are often trampled, such as a man named Zalman. Elijah stays with his father as much as he can, which is contrasted by the son of Rabbi Elihu, who leaves his father behind. At one point, when the prisoners have stopped for an allowed rest, the rabbi searches for his son, and Elijah tells him that he hasn't seen him, forgetting that he saw the son desert his father. He sees this as an example of something he must hold himself up against, a cautionary tale, if you will. However, as Eliza's father develops dysentery and therefore becomes more and more of a burden, Eliza repeatedly says that he keeps failing that test. Upon arriving at Gleivitz, they are put into barracks until the train arrives. This is when Juliet, Eliza's friend from the Buna factory and a violinist, decide to play part of Beethoven's violin concerto, a final rebellious act because Jews were forbidden to play German music. He is eventually crushed to death, and the prisoners are herded toward their train. The train ride from Gleivitz to Buchenwald via open-air cattle car is just as awful as the death march. Eliza is almost crushed and choked to death more than once, and there is one instance of German workers throwing pieces of bread into the car so the prisoners would fight over them, a source of entertainment for these people. One of those instances shows a son killing his father for the bread and then getting killed himself. When they arrive at Buchenwald, some living prisoners stay on the train, having given up and deciding that they will allow themselves to be taken away to the crematorium with the bodies of the dead. Eliza and his father are put into barracks, and his father health, father's health continues to deteriorate. He spends his time alternately keeping his father alive by giving him bread and soup, and seemingly ignoring him when he cries out for help. Elijah's father eventually dies, and he becomes more or less an automaton. In April 1945, a resistance forms in the camp, and they rise up and take over. Soon after, the United States Army liberates Buchenwald. And I am going to read the last few paragraphs of the book. Our first act as free men was to throw ourselves onto the provisions. That's all we thought about. No thought of revenge or of parents, only of bread. And even when we were no longer hungry, not one of us thought of revenge. The next day, a few of the young men went into Weimar to bring back some potatoes and clothes and to sleep with girls, but still no trace of revenge. Three days after the liberation of Buchenwald, I became very ill, some form of poisoning. I was transferred to a hospital and spent two weeks between life and death. 
One day when I was able to get up, I decided to look at myself in the mirror on the opposite wall. I had not seen myself since the ghetto. From the depths of the mirror, a corpse was contemplating me. The look in his eyes as he gazed at me has never left me. So that is uh, that is the story. That is night. Um, the first question we always ask before we get into our discussion is, did you like it? So did you like this? Um, <laughs> so it's kind of a weird question to ask. He's like, oh, yeah, it I love this. Weird, but... it, well, it's like the bluest eye, you know. Mm-hmm. I... Sure. Well, both yes, that I liked it. And, you know, it's it's interesting because it is almost hard to believe Mm -hmm. it is. It almost is like fiction. And I just mean that, like, how how on earth are there human beings that exist slash have existed slash do and will exist that could conceive of this and that this actually happened. So um, it's, I do enjoy it. I, I think it is really well-written, which is hard to say because we're reading it in translation. Mm-hmm. Um, but just like really thought provoking structure and, um, how, how he uses the language slash how his wife uses the language makes it really engaging. And you're like really invested in his life and, and learning what happens. And so beyond saying that I like it, I think also I'll say my, my word for when I am dealing with tough things, whether it's reading or watching is it's worthwhile. So whether or not it, because some people aren't going to enjoy this because of how rough it is. But I, I think hopefully they would agree that it is worthwhile literature. And I, I think it is really it's beautiful and it's tragic and it's beautifully tragic. Yes. And I will agree with all of that. And that's exactly how I would put it. I would also like to comment, you know, again, it's it's a hundred and fifteen or whatever pages it was. And the fact that he could be so eloquent in that short of a book, you know, yeah. like this, the, his, the language and the language of the translation, et cetera. You know, he deliberately, he started by writing in Yiddish and then he started by writing in French. And, and from what I understand, he wrote most or not all of his, his works in French and then they were translated, even though he was fluent in English as well. But, even then, like there's just there is him and, and his wife here. There's a command of the language, and there's this there's this eloquence to it that, um, from an English teacher perspective, I'm like this is word economy that is just on a beautiful level, you know. Like it's so succinct, and yet there's so much to it. Um, and mm-hmm. and so from a style level, I'm like just blown away. But then you have like you're right, it's surreal of how. Like we can't, we can't conceive on, we can conceive, but we can't like, it's, it's okay to say that you can't conceive of this actually happening. It doesn't mean that you don't believe it happening. It's just, it's so like beyond your scope of what you understand. Like it takes a lot to wrap your head around the specific events in here. And then when you, and one of the reasons I would have students look at other stories on the, the Holocaust Memorial Museum website and stuff like that is because 
there are so many people who have similar stories. You know, when you get into Auschwitz and you hear about men, you know, left and right and selections and, and being beaten for this and, and, and when, when they were, um, when you see them all line up like this, you're just like, A, it, it helps bring it even more to, and then you see the video footage and you see the, the artifacts, like, you know, the museum aspect of it, and it bring your, you know, the combination of those, like you were saying when I asked you about your history with it, brings it all to really, really vividly to life. But then you start to get like the magnitude of this. And I'm just like, you six million Jews dead and then countless, um, Roma and homosexuals and, um, you know, uh, the mentally, uh, mentally, uh, handicapped and or mentally disabled. Sorry. Um, you know, et cetera, like, you know, um, other political and, and war prisoners and stuff you put into these, these camps and, and, you know, just, <laughs> it's, it's overwhelming. Um, but at the same time, the, I've always appreciated how raw this book feels every time I read it. It, it never dulls. And I've read this more than 10 times and I've taught, I taught this for years, so it never dulled. And I would come out of the unit, like wanting to teach something else that was just of lighter tone, because I just always came out of the unit four classes a day for like two or three weeks, just wrecked because it was just so heavy, you know? So mm-hmm. anyway, so anyway, so this actually kind of segues into the first question I have. So his forward, which, um, which I really like his forward to this book because it just explains a little bit about history of his writing the book, but it also talks about his mission. And he talks about something that, um, Holocaust survivors and other people who have been, um, victims of family members of genocides, other atrocities, bearing witness. So let's talk about this a little. Like, what what is that? Is essentially that definition of bearing witness? What's the purpose? Um, is he? Well, I think he's successful in here. But like, you know, why? It's the why we read this question essentially, and why we keep looking at the Holocaust yeah. when it's such a horrific event. Yeah, uh, when I think of bearing witness, I've just started watching. Well, now I'm about to finish or catch up. The Handmaid's Tale. Mm. And there was one episode that was called Bearing Witness. And now all I can think about is that episode. But I imagine Bearing Witness is carrying forth the message of what happened to other people, especially to people who weren't there. Mm-hmm. I think it seems like it was so isolated that no one else knew what was going on beyond the people who were involved in it and also the surrounding areas because he mentions when they were marching through villages people looked at them but they weren't staring in awe they were just going about their business Mm -hmm. so clearly they knew what was going on but i you know other people involved in the war you know especially i think the united states really i think it was a rumor but they, when they first came upon the camps, as far as I know, I could be wrong. Uh, when they first came upon the camps, they were just like, what's happening? Who are these people? And they're, you know, letting it go. So I think bearing witness is very much carrying forth this message of, of what happened to the people that were not there, as well as remembering the people that were involved, whether they're named or not, because there's so many people that he was with that we only have such a small percentage of, of people that he actually names 
but almost remembering the the forgotten, the people who uh, dig their own grave and then are shot and thrown in it, the people who are killed in in the gas chambers and and thrown in the crematorium, all of that. So I think he's able to to carry on their memory and and message as well. And it's important for whatever reason people are I don't. Well, I, I mentioned this before, but they're forgetting about this. Mm-hmm. So I think we have a duty to pass this on. I think, you know, this is spoiler. I, I think that this is required reading for everyone, <laughs> no matter if you, you have that course or not, just so people remember and know of it. And there are people, honestly, another fictional, like another thing I can't even imagine, that they believe it actually is fiction, that it was a... Uh, a hope. Yeah, that's what they call it. And I know of someone who <laughs> who knows someone who oh, believes this good. or believes it because I think he's <sighs> passed away. So it just, you know, oh, my gosh, I, I think it's just so important, especially now that we're losing that generation of people, not only World War Two, but the survivors. I think it's important to know not only the triumph of the human spirit. I know that sounds cliche, but honestly, I, I think what else? do we see in here that he's able to stop? And of course we see lots of the negative aspects of the human spirit as well. Mm -hmm. But, but look at these people who are able to go through all this on on meager sustenance and just keep on pushing, uh, whether it was faith uh, for with what faith with faith for faith in God. (laughs) Let's go with that preposition or uh, yeah, just their, their spirit fighting on. And I lost my train of thought. This shows the triumph of the human spirit, as well as, thank you, the, gosh, I don't know, the nadir of humanity, mm-hmm. potentially. And just to show that there is evil out there, you know, for people that think everything is hunky-dory, um, that here's an aspect that look at how far we can fall and that we really need to, I think, hold each other accountable so that this kind of stuff, which... You know, we could talk about what we're what we're going through currently as a nation and as a world, but that this stuff doesn't happen again and that we really need to root out the evil that would allow that to happen and perpetuate it. Yeah, that was beautifully put, and I really don't oh, have so much to add to you. it. Yeah, except that was like your your point about how we forget these things, and it's this this it's it's kind of an indictment of our culture that we have this collective short-term memory for everything, you know, and, and we, mm-hmm. we start to think of things that, you know, are, we're not, are slightly beyond our lifetime as happening as if they were ancient history or something like, you know, like this, um, you know, I, you know, you and I, you and I are from different generations almost, but at the same time, we both have probably grandparents from the, uh, from the world war two era. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause my grandfather, was served in, in the European theater of World War II. And, um, but it's my grandfather. So it's like, and it's, we're talking 80 years ago now. And, you know, to us, that's, oh, that's so long ago, but it's like, it's not. And, um, you know, like when we, and, and we, we see this happen with other things that are more recent. We see this happen with like the civil rights movement. We see this happen with even, um, Things from like even the 70s and 80s that are really, really important to know happened and to study so that it doesn't happen again. Like, you know, the government ignoring a pandemic in a particular community, um, you know, because, you know, 
for instance, throughout the 1980s, you know, like things like that. And we, we have this way of like forgetting that these things happen or treating them as if they're like abstract things that happen, like, you know, they might as well happen in like, you know, 1980 BC you know, or whatever, the way we tend to put things. Yeah. Like we, we treat or, or we take some aspect of it and put it up on some sort of, um, like monument or pedestal and, and it becomes this watered down version of it. Like, you know, like, like I was saying, when I first learned what the Holocaust was, it was all these like abstract fill of the blanks, memorize these terms ways. And it wasn't until I read this and I saw some things and did a deeper dive that I was like, really came to understand what had gone on. Uh, you know, and, and I think that, yeah, that, that serves his, his purpose as well. And I think I had another point I was going to make, but I lost it. Oh, you were talking about um, what we what we knew over here in this country. Yeah, that's another thing. And we don't have the time to litigate what the United States government or the United States media or the people of the United States knew about the Holocaust as it was going on. You know, that could be a whole other podcast um, episode. But I think it's a it's a kind of um, sliding scale. I think that there were people who really knew what was going on. I think there were people who try to do things about it. There were people who absolutely denied it at the time and there were people who ignored it or treated it or treated it like as a rumor. So, and I think our government, I, I think it's come out that our government knew more than they originally let on, but I, I cannot do not quote me on that. It's been a long time since I actually explored that. Um, so, all right, so let's get into this. Uh, so, uh, for one of the next next questions is, as readers of this nonfiction work, do we have a right to ask, why does blank do this or why don't they do this? You know, which we tend to ask when mm-hmm. we talk about plot in a novel, uh, when the author himself does not comment on it. And um, this was you. For instance, it you kept it. asking yourself, why, when given the opportunity, does the father refuse to leave with the former housekeeper? What was this wrong and was it naive? And then I asked, in contrast, does he seem a little resentful toward his father before the deportation? Interesting. Yeah, so I guess to, to tackle just the overall, I I guess it's because it's literature. I do want to understand intent of the character, mm. we'll say. And because you were separating, I think, character from author, which which I agree. Yeah. Well, you didn't say it that way, but I'll say it that way. Um, character from yeah. author and, and what was going on. And but then, oh, man, it just made me feel a little icky because I was when I was doing this questioning, I was almost like blaming the father, like, oh, man, if you hadn't done this. And then I felt really bad because it's victim blaming. And I thought, man, I don't, I don't think I have a right, though. I just wonder what was going on through his father's head at all these opportunities. And it reminds me of that story that I've encountered so many times over the years for whatever reason about someone is either like trapped in the Arctic or on a roof and there's a Mm. flood or a hurricane or something. And they're waiting for God to help them out. And a boat comes by and they're like, no, no, God's going to save me. Then a helicopter Uh, comes by and they're like, no, no, God's going to save me. And then the person dies, and at the pearly gates, the person asks, you know, why don't you come for me? And God's like, well, I sent you a boat in the helicopter. So that almost is like, oh, man, look at look at all these, like, heralds that were coming, and, and he kind of um, 
ignores it or, you know, especially like willfully ignores it, especially I think the uh, the maid was the one that really jumped out at me. Um, to answer that question, I suppose, I wonder if, and this gets back to something I had said before that I, you can almost, how it almost felt fictional to me just because you can't imagine humanity just being this terrible and, and these things happening or, you know, someone willfully doing this. And I almost imagine maybe that's what the father was thinking that, you know, these are rooms, there's no way that there are people living that would do this to a to a group of society. And I think later on in the book, he does mention about his father being fearful. I think when there was an opportunity to to leave or run out from a bunk or something like that. So I think there might be some fear there as well. And as for the the resenting, um potentially I don't know if I, I felt that at all um, maybe with the religion talk just because he wanted to study the was it the Talmud um, or the Kabbalah the Kabbalah was the, the okay. beginning was the Kabbalah yeah and his father said you know no and uh, he, yeah he didn't seem to have as close a relationship I think to his father as one would expect you just given the, the, the rest of the, of the story. But, um, yeah, maybe, maybe about the resenting, but yeah, I don't know about looking at feelings. I think that's our knee jerk just as readers of literature. Mm -hmm. But in this case, because it's a memoir and it's a true story, I almost feel really bad to do it, to ask or to, I don't know, to blame or just be like, why didn't you do this? You know? So I feel like I can become frustrated at fiction and be like, Oh man, X, why did, why on earth would you do that? You're a terrible person. But if I did that to his father, you're like doing that to a real person. So I don't know necessarily that we have a right. I, I think we're trained to, but maybe it's something that in this case and in the case of memoirs, we shouldn't. And, and that's the chance I think to show empathy, right? Mm-hmm. To be like, um, you know, I, I'm really trying to understand why you did this and, and, and figure that out. So maybe in that case, like more empathy and trying to understand rather than condemn what what happened or what didn't happen yeah because i think assigning blame it is victim blaming but it also it also buys into a very binary or black and white way of thinking about these things where it's more nuanced than that you know he was the authority especially with the maid because he tell he doesn't necessarily say no we're not going he says i'm not going you can all go and the line next line is naturally when none of us wanted to be separated and so mm-hmm. it, there's so there it's very like i said it, it's written so simply but it's nuanced in that way and and we know their respect for him as a father um in the same way that he was like you know i'm too old to start over in palestine and like you know and 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 there are some commentaries that he offers up where he's like you know oh father what did you die for then you know like when he says like the yellow star it's not that big of a deal but you know because a lot of this novel i'm gonna slip up and say novel (laughs) so just fair warning it's not a novel but it's i think it's just a habit right a lot of this book is his as much as this is about the atrocity of the holocaust it's also about his relationship with his father 
And it's because, you know, because um, he and his father are together through the entire ordeal up until the time his father dies. And we see the evolution of their roles. In fact, and some will talk a little bit later, the departure from Saget and the departure from Auschwitz mirror one another um, in several ways. And this is actually one of them, because later on in the book, they're about to evacuate the camp. And that's where they have a decision. You know, he's in the hospital. Yep. And they're like, "Hey, we'll leave you here. We're going to get evacuate everybody else. We're just leaving the people in the hospital because we don't we can't take them with us. We're going to make you walk, right? And it's you, you can stay or you can go. And and he honestly, he's trying to figure it out. He's like, are they really going to just do that, or are they going to blow everything up on their way out? You know, like like he doesn't necessarily trust these people to be even that humane, right? They're not being humane. They're just like, we really don't care about you." Um, and his father leaves it up to him and says, well, you make the decision here. And he just, he, at that time, he makes the wrong decision. He decides to go, and they go on the death march, and the Red Army shows up. He's like, later, I found out they showed up two days after we left. And it was, so we see how that mirrors, like, because the relationship between him and his father um, flips by the end of the book. He is taking care of his father. Mm-hmm. His father was taking care of him and offering him the advice, and he's the one who was teaching his father at various times. So... I think this is part of that as well. Um, but you, you briefly mentioned people who warn them, and uh, we both, like, you texted me at one point with the word Cassandra, and I had literally, so I had a bookmark that I was using, like a post-it for a bookmark, and I was writing little notes on it as I read for possible questions, and I wrote the word Cassandra. So we were both thinking... <laughs> Along those yeah. lines, and the question is, Moisha the Beetle, Madame Schachter, as Cassandra's, mm-hmm. why do we choose not to listen to the heralds of doom? And we yeah. literally mean doom, not the fair doctor. <laughs> oh, man, you just got brownie points from Professor Cheapskate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I just want to say I think... You can thank me for brainwashing you with all the classic <laughs> stuff that I've made you <laughs> do. But I, I don't even think I recognize that the first time that I saw it. I think that it was it was more powerful the second mm-hmm. time that I read it. But yeah, especially oh man, that whole Mrs. Shakespeare scene or scenes it goes on for a while is so disturbing just that she's seeing these flames and everyone gets startled at least twice i mean definitely the first time and i think when they roll through like it happens again even though they felt like they should know better and i thought oh man i i feel like she can see some stuff and then yeah beetle going through the Mm -hmm. town basically saying i experienced this i made it through and no one's believing him uh, and just as a refresher about Cassandra, if people don't remember, Cassandra is the uh, daughter of King Priam of Troy, and she was blessed with foresight, but cursed that because of Apollo, uh, cursed that no one would believe her. So she actually, you know, seems psychotic and insane because she was saying Troy is going to burn. So we've got these people, yeah, saying that. Oof. Uh, so I think part of it is doubt, doubt that you know, this kind of thing could happen. So again, going back to this sounds too horrible Mm -hmm. to be believed. So I think part of it is that, and I guess potentially looking at the person. So beetle, he 
was an interesting character. People let him uh, let him alone. Leave left left him alone yeah. for the most part. Uh, he was kind of like a I don't know an, a crazy uncle type. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't crazy. I don't no, know. No, no, he's kind he, of like eccentric. A, oh, that Mr. Yeah, Beetle. Exce- <laughs> oh, that moist. Yeah, eccentric um, is probably. And he was word. living out on the street, yeah. right? So you know, he doesn't seem as believable a person as you know. Had this happened to, um, uh, Eliza, mm-hmm. is that his? Yeah. yeah, or his father or something. And then everyone's. You, trapped in this cattle car and and she's freaking out and and doesn't stop and so it's just hard to i guess believe so unfortunately it's you know these really momentous occasions or this foresight come from people that it's hard to believe and so i think it's it's almost like prejudgment or prejudice on our mm-hmm. part that we're just looking at the source and seeing if that source is trustworthy, and a lot of times it's it's not. And and also, you don't want to be a fool. Yeah. You don't want to listen to somebody and then, <laughs> well, they they took my advice and they ran off. weren't weren't they silly? So I think that's also. I think it might be some pride, maybe mm-hmm. like you don't want to be the only one to listen to it. So it's just so complicated, but. My gosh, you know, th- there's almost an absence of God in this book. I don't know. Are we going to talk about religion? We will get to religion but, later on. Okay. But there's also these really blindingly obvious, if that makes mm. sense, moments that like, oh, my gosh, there, you know, God was right there and he was and, and look what we had done. So it's almost like a failure of our faith, potentially. Mm. Yeah, the the other thing that always strikes me in the Madame Schachter scene is the fact that her her young boy is holding her hand the entire time, Oof. and it's just it just yeah. it, like it's so it's just oh um, yeah. But with both of them, especially Moisha, who's yeah, he's an eccentric, right? Um, we it, it it is very true to human nature, though. When you think of it, think of the way we don't believe people in our society. Um, or as, as humans, when they tell something that happened to them and, um, there's even, and, and that empathy is in degrees. Some people readily avail, readily believe a victim's story. Some people are skeptical. Some people completely doubt it and they're motivated by, um, either their own self-preservation, their bigotry or whatever, for, you know, for whatever reason, uh, misogyny. But so the idea that they wouldn't, this this foreign eccentric foreign guy in town is talking about all this like whatever Moisha like he's so totally full of it or he's playing it up for it. you know like we've heard that at some level about um you know a number of different things in our own society you know and how people will actively try to discredit people who talk about their experiences you know I yeah. mean like you know how many times have we seen for instance and I and forgive me for bringing it up like rape victims talk about their experiences oh, yeah. so it, it he's tapping here into something about our human nature that is one of the darker things about it and that we don't believe the warnings because either we're complacent or 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 we or we have prejudices against those people or whatever and there is a lot of complacency in the beginning of this book we we see a lot of positive thinking in the beginning you know well this is we probably won't get any worse than this oh the germans are never going to make it this far yeah. you know etc is it optimism is it faith in humanity is it just naivete is it dangerous to be that naive 
Um, and I had a couple of uh, examples from page nine. Of course, we had heard of the fascists, but it was all an abstract. And also consider the way that the Germans are there. Germans are really good at getting them complacent and then knocking the knocking everything out from under them. You know, yeah, they don't come in guns blazing. They come in with smiles on their faces. Yeah. yeah so good. Guess. Yeah. So I don't know. Like, what, what's your take on, on that? I, oy, oy, oy. <laughs> I think in some circumstances, I guess it is dangerous to be naive um, and, and perhaps think well of human nature. I, I think I'm unfortunately getting to this point, but now I wonder if, gosh, is so is, is being cynical, is that protecting oneself is that safe to be cynical and i i don't know it's so hard because these uh, people well, some of them could have gotten out i think had they been i guess cynical um but their their hope in humanity i think held them back and so i don't know if it's naive i think maybe now it would be considered naive because now we've reached this point where these we've experienced these terrible things mm -hmm. we know that this stuff exists out there but back then i think we had not reached that pinnacle or nadir i suppose it would be in that context mm -hmm. and so they still had that hope in humanity but now perhaps it's good to be a little cynical uh, just to protect yourself, like, I know that these things exist, so I better watch out. But you also have to be, be, you know, careful because in any situation that could also be really <laughs> detrimental yeah. in, you know, meeting somebody. Because if you think the worst of them right away, then there's like no reason for you to have a relationship. Um, so it's, it's, that's a hard question for me to answer. I, I feel like that was my question that I put uh, well, down, but. Yeah. No, I think I think you're I, I think you're right in that it, again. It, it, there's a lot of nuance in this, and that a, a, some, there is a healthy amount of cynicism to have or skepticism to have in life. But when you overdose on it, you get to the point where you don't believe anything, and then you get into not believing the victim of a story. You know, in, in that particular yeah. in that particular place. But I think, again, it's very natural to think this can't happen to me. Yeah. That line, of course, we'd heard of the fascists, but it was all an abstract, is so true to what a lot of us in this country think yeah. about. Because it's not – now, for some people, it does happen right outside their front door. But for so many of us, we are in a very secure comfortable bubble um and it speak that speaks to privilege you know there and they're speaking to privilege yeah. there like you know yeah, it's not going to happen here so i think that again that's it's a really good just by showing that it's a good commentary on it it's not blaming anybody for anything mm -hmm. and it and it shows the evil of the of the nazis in yeah. a really subtle way so we're going to get into the camps here. And when we get into Auschwitz-Birkenau, and again, the image, that's another image. His mother, oh my God, like, I don't like the death of children. <laughs> I don't mm. think anybody does, but, you know, it's just, oh, scenes like that where children die or children, the, he's, she's, or, or, or children that are hurt in some way or whatever just get to me. And the scene... 
the mother stroking that it's just it's so devastating especially since you know that that's it he never sees her again then we're then we're they're processed through and there are he gets into the whole routine of things and then there's some other stuff so for instance um stein so like why is stein so angry that Eli's father can't recognize him because stein comes to see him. he's like hey don't you recognize me and yeah. um it's actually kind of funny because Eli tell Eliezer tells this story about how he's like yeah my father didn't recognize anybody we had a family member come to stay with us and it was two weeks until she he realized she was there which again a little bit of levity in that um yeah is it not anger i mean what what like that whole scene with stein what what is your mm-hmm. like you know because because he lies to him about his family and stuff and then he finds out the truth you know is that is that a good lie to tell is he harming him uh okay so let me begin with saying that this is my question and so i i perceived it as anger or annoyance mm-hmm. like you go up yeah. to someone and you don't nice recognize me, me. it's yeah. like with students that are in the class all year long and one of them doesn't know another one's name and i yell at them like you've been in, a, in their class since august give me a break but yeah so i perceived it as anger but perhaps it wasn't and and it was I don't know, desperation potentially to be recognized because a lot of the moments, sorry, I felt like I was yelling. (laughs) A lot of the moments of calm after I say that, but as calm as it could get after moving or marching, people went to find one another, especially if they went to a new location. So I think when Stein happens upon them, there's probably some, joy there that you know relatives distant relatives Mm -hmm. and he wants to be recognized as well so to almost to be known within these masses these you know gray masses of Mm -hmm. people so so perhaps it's desperation but it, it felt like there was some anger there like come on your wife's aunt i think it was or your wife's yeah something it was one of those is is married to me that sort of thing so I think knowing, being known, that would be my answer for, for why there might be some desperation or anger there. Um, he, I think he doesn't intentionally – let me think about this. I think he doesn't know the truth, right? He doesn't know the truth. Yeah. But he doesn't know exactly where they are, so he just says that they're they're okay. Yeah. I remember that last line of that section. It says something about like he finds the real mm-hmm. truth. And it's like italicized. That was pretty powerful. I think that, you know, while someone would say no lie is a good lie, I think in that circumstance, that's probably all you could do. You're in terrible, in a terrible situation and he's just looking for one ounce of hope to keep going because I think if he had known the truth at that moment, he would have probably just given up and died. And, and I suppose that's up for argument's sake, whether that would have been better for him or not. But in this way, he was he was able to be, you know, hopeful mm-hmm. that his loved ones were safe and everything. Yeah. So for me, I feel like, yes, that is a that is a good lie for him, though. I don't know if that means that it's all the more devastating once he found out the real truth or not. 
Yeah, that no, that's a, that's a good point, and and I've always felt that way too. And then I've always struck of how this mirrors a scene later with the rabbi, because the rabbi comes looking for his son, and he, in that oh. case, oh, yeah. Eliezer tells him that he hasn't seen him, but he's not lying because he has honestly yeah. forgotten that he did see him, and he doesn't mm-hmm. remember this until later. He doesn't go out and find the rabbi and tell him, "Hey, look, I know your son deserted him," but. I don't think I would either in that case. You know, I think that I told, I, I mistakenly told him that, that, I, you know, that I didn't know. Um, then I realized, oh wow, his son left him. And now, now I'm racked with guilt that like, I think I'm going to do that to my father. But like, you know, I wouldn't go tell the rabbi the truth because I want the rabbi to keep looking for his son because it's keeping him going. You know, so it's, it's a similar mm-hmm. case there. But again, it's this way this, this book mirrors itself later on in the, uh, between the two journeys that they take, um, there. But yeah, I, I agree with you. It's, it's a, it's interesting of what they try to find hope in or what they try to find, um, life in, in some way or another, what can keep them going from day to day, even if it's the routine of things, if it's staying out of trouble, if it's not being selected, the selections are terrible. They like made them run. They, they like have these people who they've been, have, have been slave driving for at one point months. Right. And then they're like a selection. You got to run the 40 and it's like, you know, I can't run the 40 now. I, I can't imagine after being starved and beaten for months on end. And at one point he like, you know, um, he runs it and there's, he's like, did they write my number down? And his friends are like, I don't think they can see you running so fast, you know, yeah. which is funny. There's a little bit of humor in this book, yeah. little, little bits and pieces of for levity, because I think it just, he, he knows he needs that to keep us engaged so that we don't get exhausted. Mm-hmm. I, I mentioned Idek changing the schedule around to sleep with a girl, which leads into a very horrible event. It's not like it's a ha ha funny moment, but, but it is kind of funny. Um, but then there's these two really great moments of hope. Um, two of my favorite not moments in the entire book. Uh, one is the incident with the French girl. Cause he was just, he was just mm-hmm. working next to this girl for a while. He didn't realize she spoke German and it was, she was keeping a secret cause she was passing as Aryan. Um, and that gets to the hierarchy of prisoners. Like if there is a hierarchy of prisoners in concentration camps in Nazi Germany, Jews are at the bottom. And, uh, and, and one of the things I used to show when I taught this is the graphic of the different stars and markings, triangles that the Germans used to have mm-hmm. them wear to indicate what type of prisoner they were because it, it did establish hierarchy. So she, she was able to forge her way in after being captured to be, to be passed off as Aryan and basically like a, a labor camp prisoner that would never ever be sent to death. But then she breaks it when he gets beaten terribly and, and whispers like, you know, have hope in perfect German. And then there's that. I just it's very sweet to me, the scene that he tells of running into her on the metro later. Mm-hmm. On. Um, did, are, are, did you agree? Do you agree with me or are you just like, no, you're just <laughs> you're totally. <laughs> no, no, I agree. I, I think that hope finds its way. In, in the most desperate of situations or the, the most horrible of situations. And, and when that happens, I think it's, it shines like a beacon. And so I think that happened after he was beaten right after the, the sex thing, um, right? Wasn't no, that, that was, a, was that was he, a different incident. 
I believe. Okay. I think this was just he happened to. Oh, yeah. this was when he walked in front of that yeah. car that was just on a tyrant, yeah. right? And yeah. or he got in his way. Yeah, so I said. Yeah, because yeah, Idek is this guy who's basically, um, uh, for for lack of a better phrase, mentally unstable. And if you got in his way at the wrong time, you were going to get beaten. Yeah. And both him and his father did. So yeah, so just. Um, yeah, I know. I thought those were really beautiful moments. And, and it almost went both ways because for her, she felt like she could trust mm -hmm. him to reveal the truth that she actually could speak German. So I, I thought that was great. And then, yeah, showing that in the future for, you know, this book that they, they met one another again and, and he could tell just by her eyes, mm -hmm. I thought, Oh, that, that's so lovely yeah. <laughs> that they were able to, to meet just randomly. And then they ended up talking about, um, everything afterwards. So no, I agree with you. And, and I think it, all the more poignant just because of all the, the terrible stuff that he had been going through and the people were going through at yeah. the time. And then I have written down, um, Juliet, and, and this is a scene that, Every time I read it, I have to put the book down because it just mm. gets me. Uh, it's that scene um, at, at the, the end, end where Juliet was a violinist and there were a number of musicians mm -hmm. in the camp and they weren't allowed to play Beethoven. And he just starts playing it. He had his violin with him on the death march and he just starts playing it like out of nowhere. And... Mm -hmm. um, uh, Eliza says the narration, Faisal says the narration, there was a piece of a Beethoven violin concerto. Now, Beethoven only wrote one violin concerto, so what I would do in class would pause and I would, we would talk about this moment and then I would read it while playing the Beethoven piece. And it's a beautiful piece of music. And it's just this moment, and, and the thing I love about it. It is such an act of rebellion. He knows he's going to die. And before he dies, because he wakes up the next morning, the violin is crushed and Juliet is dead. And he, he, he Juliet knows this and that, that this is it. And he just, at one last moment, like, I don't know, he just gives himself agency or seizes it for himself and gives the middle finger to, you know, the Nazis who are, have destroyed him and plays this piece. And I'm just like, it blows me away every single time. I'm just like, this is, it's, it's such a beautiful, sad, haunting moment for me. Yeah. And it's astounding too, because this happened after I had to read it a couple of times. I was just trying to figure out what happened, but basically a stampede of mm -hmm. people. Our narrator is being crushed. He almost suffocates uh -huh. and dies. And Juliet is, is calling out and, and I think saying, you know, I just don't let them crush my violin. I don't even know how he was able to hold on to that <laughs> violin and it'd be okay for that. So I, again, yeah, a, again, a moment of hope. I, I feel like. You know, God is really in that moment as well, to, because just imagine all the people sitting there listening to that music and, and that being that last thing and having that violin survive all of that until Juliet's final breath. So, yeah, a really beautiful moment. And again, I think it's it's almost this juxtaposition that you see between the horrid or you know, almost like the... 
I don't know, grotesque is probably not the right word because I'm thinking of uh, Flannery mm. O'Connor. But just these terrible moments juxtaposed with these moments of beauty. Mm. It's it's really astounding uh, that it can work, but I think b- both heighten each other or one heightens the other. Yeah, yeah. And I think it, it brings us along with it too as the reader. Yeah. And without being trite... And I think that's really important because that can happen very quickly and very easily in terms of a storytelling, you know, moments that are saccharine or trite to the point where they're disingenuous, you know, like, um, and this is not, this feels very authentic in the way it's written and expressed. And I think that's why, I think that's why it hits me so much, you know? Because I am cynical. Yeah. <laughs> and I am. <gasps> Tom, no. You know, but I, but I, when I know a genuine moment uh, like this, I, I, it, it affects me more than like, you know, sentiment does. You know what I mean? Um, cause this novel, uh, sorry, this book, geez, this book is about it. I told <laughs> you, I keep doing this. This book is about it's about cruelty and inhumanity and, and, mm. and horrific things. And, and, um, and, you know, uh, um, I talk to the students every year about how this happened and I make a point or I wouldn't, I haven't taught this in a few years cause I don't teach sophomores anymore. Um, but I made a point every year I taught it to talk about systemic racism and talk about mm. the way that, like, like you said, the, the the people in the cities that they would go through would just kind of like go about their day as these people were being rushed through, you know, being marched through. Because, you know, anti as I point out to my students, anti-Semitism does not begin with Adolf Hitler. It existed mm-hmm. in Europe um, a couple of thousand years at this point, almost right. It was just you know the the the, the Catholic Church perpetuating you know anti-Semitism for for generations and, and centuries since the Middle Ages and things like that. And you know there are there are works of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance that that use the word Jew as a pejorative, you know, and, and things like that. So this is ingrained in the society that these people as a religious group are, or as a, as an ethnicity are lesser than anyway. So the ease at which the Nazis are able to convince their people to either go along with it or ignore it or whatever, you know, and again, we could do a whole other podcast or podcast episode about that, but I always make it point out. And then I point out again, Notice how they get the prisoners to look over each other. Like we see Germans in this book and we see German officers and we see the SS and we see the, you know, we don't really see the Gestapo, but we see the SS and they are cruel, but they're not as directly responsible for the cruelty of the story as other inmates are. Idek, Franek, they are other inmates. There are, um, he uses the word gypsies, but uh, Roma who are put in charge of them and beat them horribly. You know, it, it it's, what is it about the psychology behind this? What is it about that? Um, it shows the extraordinary cruelty of the Nazis, but also like, why would you as an inmate, if you're put in charge of other inmates, uh, treat them so horribly? 
It reminds me of that experiment. Was that at Yale? Was it Stanford? You're talking about the Stanford yeah, you know what I'm experiment? Talking about? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They really took the role seriously. Yeah, it's it's that was confusing to me just because I was trying to figure out like, are they not of the same people? You know, mm. what are you doing right now? You're perpetuating this. But I think it's almost self preservation. You know, if I am seen to be like my captors then perhaps they'll go easy, on, go easy on me and I will survive. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it's desperation and yeah, self-preservation. And, and we see plenty of that throughout the, the the memoir of just people doing things that you would never expect, a son beating his father, that sort of thing. So as far as that's you know what I think, I think there were some extraordinary human beings there, as far as I could tell, that – did what they should have done, which was be kinder mm -hmm. to others. So there were those examples as well. But yeah, the ones that really stood out were the the cruel ones because I thought, man, you're in the same pit boat. What are you doing? You could be helping them. But I think it's just um, almost being a chameleon and, and taking on the attributes of your captor in order to protect yourself. I think so, but I also think it's a power dynamic thing as well, because you have um, you are a prisoner who comes into this and essentially have had any power taken away from you. And just normally, the power that you would have as a normal citizen, you know, um, it didn't matter if whether you were the mayor of a town or you were an assembly line worker at a factory, right? Any power that you had over your humanity is taken away from you at Birkenau. And then you're given power over a group of people. And that can bring things out in people and cruelty out in people that they didn't, that we did not realize they had. So it's also, I think it's a look at how power, especially when encouraged by people who are, you know, fascists, um, can, mm -hmm. can affect the way a person behaves towards somebody else. So, so yeah, so to add to that, um, because there was a hierarchy in the camps and, you know, they would use the different inmates against one another, et cetera. And they would, but you're right. There was a self-preservation aspect to it because if you could get in favor with some of them, then you were spared. There's underpinnings and talk throughout the book here and there of how, uh, some of the more prominent guards or officers used to traffic in children as yeah. um, the people, I believe their names are, um, you know, they were essentially because there were a number of Nazi SS guards and, and other people in there who were pedophiles and they used to essentially traffic the kids. And um, in some cases it was, uh, it was just a matter of that. In other cases, they actually gave the kids some power and they were, they were brutal themselves, you know, because he said like they were hated for their mm -hmm. cruelty um, because of their favorite, because they were favored, you know, and that's a whole other, you know, that's a whole other level of cruelty because you're not, you're giving them power over people while, while grooming the kids and favoring them and then using them in a, um, like you want to talk about inhumanity, you know, it is just, um, it's just layers upon layers of just this, this horrific inhumanity that he is in. And that brings us to the hangings. 
And I always, um, we always talk about how they, we can juxtapose the two because they happen right after each other. Um, you know, and, and one of them, the first one is, um, that this guy gets caught stealing food during an air raid. They hang him and he's, he's desensitized at this point. He continually sees them and they're all like, well, we're alive. Yay. That night the soup tasted better than ever. It's like, you know, woohoo, we're okay. And they're not even thinking about this guy. But then they get to this other one with these three people who have been planning an uprising. And uh, they got caught. And the kids. So um, I would actually explain this in class. And it's horrific to do physics in this regard. But you don't strangle, essentially, the way you slowly die when you're, when you're hanged. You know, the way they would hang them would be they would set up a gallows um, put the people standing on chairs, put the noose around their necks, kick the chair out from under them. They would fall on the weight of their body, plus the tension of the rope would snap their neck. The kid was too light. So when he fell, the I believe it's called a slipknot of the noose tightened. But the force of his weight did not produce enough reaction Um to snap his neck. So he strangled to death slowly and he was still alive when he, um, he, uh, he passed by and that's where he says the line, you know, uh, that night the suit tasted like corpses, but before the hanging and I have to find it. So just give me a second. Cause this is going to get into our discussion of religion, <laughs> um, or faith or, or what have you. Uh, um, Okay, so no, this is after the hanging. So, And so he remained for more than half an hour, lingering between life and death, writhing before our eyes. Could you imagine having to watch that? <sighs> anyway, uh, and we were forced to look at him at close range. He was still alive when I passed him. His tongue was still red, his eyes yet not extinguished. Behind me, I heard the same man asking, for God's sake, where is God? And from within me, I hear heard a voice answer, where is he, where he is? This is where hanging here from this gallows that night, the soup tasted of corpses. So, um, now I've always seen this book as his belief or faith being destroyed. And, um, and I think that particular scene goes back to what is probably the famous lines of the book, the, um, never shall I forget, uh, portion when he arrives in, because, um, because when he arrives in Auschwitz, um, he says, uh, you know, he sees all these things and he says, um, Never shall I forget that night, et cetera, et cetera. And he says, uh, never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to ashes. Um, you know, this idea that this is, this is that night. And then later on, it's, it's further destruction. And, you know, and he's, he says in the foreword, um, you know, he's, it's called night because it's, it's, you know, the ending and then the beginning of something else. So he eventually would come back to faith. But I, I have always seen this as like, this is these 
I don't even want to call the Nazis people, but, you know, and the Nazis taking this all away from him and destroying it. And the fact that he, he barely makes it out alive. And at the end, he's just alive. If that, his humanity is gone, you know, they take away his people, they take away his, his, they take away his faith, they take away his father. And at the end, all he can think of is food. And, and I think that's really significant. And, um, I'll never forget when my students were talking about this, they, they played some clip and it was some like Christian talk show. And this guy was quoting this passage and he didn't attribute it to Elie Wiesel, which first that ticked me off. But then he started talking about this as if it's this huge metaphor for Christ. And then I, so I looked it up. I was, I couldn't find it, but I looked up other people and other people were like, Oh yes, God's right there with him. And, 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 you know, well, God is there with you in Christ. And I'm like, and I'm sitting there like reading this, getting apoplectic. And I'm like, no, you're trivializing what he's going through there by saying that. Except the fact that it's destroyed. I don't know. Maybe I'm being cynical or maybe I'm being wrong or I, you know, I am not religious. So maybe, you know, somebody can explain it to me. But I mean, like, what does that mean? If not, you have destroyed the faith that I had because you have put this there and there's nothing left for me here. As far as, as my faith is concerned, it's hanging on this gallows. Is there any other way to take that? I take that exactly literally as he says it. And apparently others don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the, there's the whole thing with literature, right? I mean, the only person I think that can really comment on this is, yeah. is the author. So it, the, the Christ argument is, I think tricky. it's anti-Semitic actually, but I'm not going to, get to that that'll that you want to hear me rant about that well yeah i get yeah, technically it would be because yeah christ is certainly not in there um they just feel like he's a messiah uh a like a uh um uh, uh a prophet Possibly. rather than the yeah um so yeah i can totally see that so and i you know that that's one of those one to one, <laughs> like whenever we see someone, you know, crucified or, or some sort of symbolism there, we jump right away to, to Christ. And I, I think that it's, I don't know, you use the word tripe before. I feel like it's getting mm -hmm. that way. I, I think people really need to be more cautious about when they decide to make that connection or illusion and, and have that visually there. Um, I think there are several things going on with that scene. First of all, that child as well as the person that he worked with were beloved in the camp, which because of their kindness, I think. Mm -hmm. And then wasn't it a rabbi that was the guy that he was the child was working under or something like that? So he was also. He was wise. I might be misremembering, but but I do know that they were both loved because of their kindness. And so you, you can you've got to, which which I think is is true for many of the instances going on there. Whenever there's kindness or hope or beauty, you've got to grasp it and hold on to it in these sort of circumstances. 
And I think that child also represents such innocence. So to see that destroyed, your question, of course, you're going to question like, where are you, God? You know, if you you're allowing this sort of thing to happen. Also, you know, we're told that we are made in the image of God. And so I think there's also that potential connection as well that, you know, if God is with us there, he is right there. Um, that there's like this perfect image of, of this child who was innocent, who was kind and loving and seems like he, um, looked beautiful as mm-hmm. well. That's the description he so, uses, you know, yeah. all, all of these things like, yes, you know, you have killed him. He's, he's right there. So I, I think there, there's a lot going on, but I also think just that, you know, this is like the last straw. The other guy, I think, was a he was a hulking kind of mm-hmm. man. He was someone that could beat you up. So I think there was respect there. But see, that's, you know, an adult and, and someone that just, he, I don't know, he's presented differently than than this kid. So I, I agree with you that I think it is he's straight for, he's being straightforward here. He's not being coy. But I also do think that there are some deeper uh, religious aspects. But I don't think, well, you know, I see why people try to make that leap right to Christ everywhere. You know, I just don't think it fits um just because you know christ is people it just frustrates me because it's really got to fit well you know is he someone who has died in order to save you know a bunch of people is the death of this child did that change anything you know to help people It, it really i i don't see that it did it just perpetuated what was going on and probably broke people even mm-hmm. farther so i i don't think that that fits as well as you brought up the it just doesn't mesh with the um jewish <laughs> message either so so i agree with you and i also think there are some deeper religious implications yeah although i do and and let we can get into just the the religion throughout the book as well because um i i think that that interpretation that we were just talking about also leads us down to what I think is a misinterpretation of this book being this sort of like faith got him through this type of thing, which is not the case either. Um, and I think the, the end of the book shows that, um, you know, that, that cause he wants, I, I've always interpreted it or I've always seen it like very literally, he wants us to show what they did to him because, and he wants us to, he wants to leave us very, feeling very raw because, and not wrap it up in a way. You know, the book ends. It does not, it ends, it, it's a happy ending that he's rescued, but it just ends. Yeah. You know, there's no concluding paragraph of, of, of nice button package ending. It's literally, and I'm jumping forward a little bit. It's like the, the, you know, the corpse was staring back at me, you know? So to be like, you know, oh, but he still had <laughs> this with him. It's like, no, you're trivial, trivializing it. But, it, but a religion is a huge, huge part of this book, you know, aside from the fact that they were Jewish, you know, just his Ju- Judaism and his belief because he's so like he is like um for lack of a better word and I don't mean to say this to be to, to, to trivialize him he's advanced studies at 12 years old you know <laughs> he's like honor mm-hmm. honor student type and 
and uh, you know, so, so what do you? I mean, what is um, what are the what is the religion in this book? You know, what, what is what is going on with him through this? Um, you know, and and how should we look at religion and his faith and 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 stuff as we read through this and things get worse and worse and worse? If I could relate him to one character in the Bible. Mm-hmm. I would relate him to Job. Mm-hmm. Which he does as well. Yeah. He says he I like think it's, it's rather yeah. fitting. Yeah. So, man, his faith is, is such a journey throughout this this novel. It's, it's huge in the beginning. And then as he's seen all of this stuff happen, it, it's starting to be stripped away. And, and I think at the end... It's, you know, the skeleton looking back at it or the corpse looking back at him is not only of flesh, but I think his is his spirit mm-hmm. as well. And I don't know what his his story is afterwards, but uh, I hope I hope he is re- able to regain some of it, though. I can understand what he went through. Uh, it's interesting, though, because it was so ingrained in him that even though he's sane, that he has lost or is losing faith throughout that journey, it still pops up from time mm-hmm. to time. He still does turn to God and at, you know, pray to him in, in different circumstances. The one that I remember right now is, is just after that happened between the, the father and the son, when he realizes he accidentally lied and oh, that yes. the son may have wanted to abandon the father, he prays, you know, please let mm-hmm. this not happen to me. And unfortunately, uh, he did to a certain extent uh, with his a couple times after that. So he, he does still have some faith, but it's so hard. And this is, you know, something that students who are either, you know, struggling with their with their faith or don't want anything to do with it and, and try to be those, you know, well, what about this? You know, they, they always ask about suffering and that's the hardest thing, you know, uh, why? Why would we why should we believe in a God that allowed that sort of suffering? So I <laughs> with him, I think there's it's almost like the losing of it and the losing of or the absence of maybe God as he sees it. But in my reading of it, especially the second time, I don't remember about that first time. I think the the first time I was pretty, I felt some despair at at the losing of faith. I feel like even in his telling of it, and I don't know if he meant it this way, but I feel like it comes out that actually, even though there's all this suffering, um, God pops up, in, in some of these moments there for sure. And uh, perhaps it just takes outside readers to see that. And I don't know if him putting it down pen to paper, if he also recognized um, that it's, that it was there, but it was hard for him because he was going through this, this, um, I don't know, doubt potentially stripping it bare. Uh, so that's just me. I, I see God in those uh, beautiful moments, but then yes, you, you do compare it to a young child, strangling to death at the end of the noose and you're like well oh my gosh what's going on here or just the whole episode in general i can't answer that question the suffering question i don't know but um 
perhaps i mean we we come back to the bearing witness yeah. right and and again just the the he was able to show these moments but perhaps it's just for other people and and not necessarily for him and that was his purpose i don't know but uh yeah no i i certainly i think i i do disagree with the the audience i guess that you're talking about that he really, he's, you know, faith is all over the place because I think we do see his loss of faith, but I don't think we see the loss of mm-hmm. God necessarily throughout. I mean, his absence, you kind of see it, but I also see his presence throughout. And that's just me. Again, that's just uh, me. I, I see, you know, because I, because the, the immediately after the hanging, that second hanging is the Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur parts where he, talks about how he is at Rosh Hashanah they do attend a service and the entire time he's thinking why the heck should I praise you he's so angry like so angry and then Yom Kippur he eats which if you if you those of you who don't know anything about Judaism Yom Kippur is a day of atonement you don't eat from sun sunset the night before to sunset the night the day of you know you you pray you you fast and um and uh yeah so that's uh it's but he did consider doing he that, did, that yes. one. He did consider observing there, and his father told him yeah, not and it's, to. Yeah, so it's 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 like it's stripped away further and further and further. And when he does pray after Rabbi Elihu's son, you know, and all that, he says, "And in spite of myself, a prayer formed inside me, a prayer to this God, in whom I no longer believed." So, um, I think your assessment of the presence being there, but the but the belief not being is is expressed right here and i think i think that's that's very accurate and i think that's why because like i know later in life he was um uh wrote about you know how he did eventually come back to judaism you know Mm-hmm. You know, and so, 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 um, he, it's not, he didn't, it's, it, it didn't turn into an atheist or anything like that, you know, but, but, um, but yeah, it is just, uh, it, again, like I said, it's this whole thing about them, them beating this out of him at an age that is very, very formative. And, um, you know, it's, it's important to, to recognize what he goes through and not, tr- and, and, and say, and, and say God is there in a way that, is not trivializing. I'm using that word again. Yeah, but you know what I mean? Like the way that people will say that is, yeah, you don't just, Oh, well, God, yeah, it's really condescending. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I get it. So, so, but you can say it without being condescending and without being patronizing. And, and I think that's, that's the key. Um, because also like it's, it's about the Holocaust. It's about, faith it's about his relationship with god it's about his father too and he holds on to his father and his father holds on to him more and more and more as things get worse and worse and worse um and he and he's like and he toward the, especially toward the end he's like i'm failing this test i'm failing this test does he fail the test you know how is his father a tie to his humanity and does he fail the test of being there for his father when his father needs him. Ooh, well, it's interesting. Just your does he resent his father mm. at the beginning, and, and to see that if that is true, just to see their relationship throughout. And one could say, "Oh, well, it's desperation." You know, you're connected, but I think they're they really are 
brought closer together with mm-hmm. everything. And, and I feel like that's one of the beautiful moments as well, just how many yeah. times they are together and, and they seek each other out. Uh, could you, what was the first Does question he, about humanity? Is it, it's is tied his to father? His yeah. Yeah. Like how is his father a tie to his own sense of humanity? Yeah. Well, I think because it is not every man for himself, even though he was told that by at least one inmate, I remember that he is a person, you know, he's looking out for somebody else. He is not what solipsistic. <laughs> So I, I feel like um, even though, you know, there are people that looking out for themselves, it's, it's not like they're a danger to someone else or, you know, but sometimes you'll ignore the other person in need because you're just looking mm-hmm. out for yourself. And perhaps that dehumanizes you because who are you if you're not looking out for somebody else? So, yes, I think that is a, a, his tie to humanity, that he's not just crazily beating other people in order to, to get mm-hmm. bread. Um or I I don't know what else. I'm trying to think of what else had happened between loved ones or, you know, running off or something yeah. like that. I think he's hard on himself about that. I think that these moments come to mind, especially that one, because he said, let me not do this. And then he, he kind of did. He had those thoughts in his heart. And then um, he didn't go to his father when basically he was mm-hmm. dying at the at the very end. But... I just think of all the moments when he really is, man, I don't know, with him in, in, in every, uh, possible way of that word that he's teaching mm-hmm. him to march so that his father doesn't get beat, that he stays with him. They, they keep each other awake throughout the night so they don't freeze to death. Um, holding on to rations for him. So not people cannot be perfect. And yes, we do slip. And, and I think that's perhaps part of our human nature that we almost we, we focus on our failings. But he came through so often. And um, I, I think there was a lot of fear in, in that ending. His father's dying, not only fear, of course, to be killed from the SS, but perhaps fear also of being witness to, to his father's death. And, you know, that's his he's losing it. He's losing his tie to humanity, potentially, or his purpose, because he was certainly staying alive for his father as well. So I, I don't think he failed. Uh, maybe he made there were some slips but he, I mean, I would say on a, he he is a good son. He is a good son to his father. Yeah, and I understand the guilt that he feels even after his his father's yeah. death. Um, but but like there's other incidents of sons and their fathers that go even all the way back to the beginning of their time in Auschwitz. They talk about one of their relatives who. You know, proved that he was really strong, so that his job became loading bodies into the crematorium, and one of the bodies was his own father. So, like, there's an incident of not cruelty mm-hmm. toward your father, but just like again, the horror of all this. And then there is uh, when he's talking about the people or the people or whatever the name or the, the kids who were the the really really hated ones because they were extra cruel because of the way they were you know used by the guards and given power. He describes like one of them beating his own father. You know, and, and, and just not mm-hmm. just beating him, but taunting him as he beat him. And then, of course, on the train, which again, that horrific thing where the German worker throws in the, um, uh, 
it's like sociopathic. Like he throws the crust of bread in and they all fight over it. And a, and one and like, you know, the guy grabs it and his son kills him over it. And he's like, it's your father. I've saved this for both of us. And his son is so far gone that he doesn't recognize his own father and he kills his father. And they both end up dying because they get crushed by the people. Like, you know, they have dehumanized these people to the point where they are, you know, mm-hmm. and, and um, the, the cruelty involved in that, you know. Um, and he compares it. I, I like the fact that he, it, after that moment, that's when he compares it to, uh, being on a cruise ship years later and a woman, um, chucking coins into, uh, uh, yeah, I think they were off the oh, coast of gosh. Africa or the middle or somewhere off the Middle East or whatever. So the yeah. poor kids. And it's like incredibly racist too, because they're, they're like, uh, um, Aden is in, um, so they're they're non-white, you know. So it's that sort of colonialist. Uh, it's off of the coast of Yemen, so it's that colonialist sort of racism among people looking out toward you, know, looking down upon another race. And she's like, "Well, I like to give to charity," and it's like, "Yeah, like it's so disgusting." <laughs> But um, but yeah, so you have that, and you have all these examples, and Rabbi Eli, whose son abandoning him, and you are you're right the whole time. I'm like, no, you are fine. You are being too hard on yourself, but I understand your guilt. And but I feel, do you feel like I do? Like his father held on to the point where he knew that once he left, um, Elias would be okay, or at least he was trying to. Oh, interesting. You know, or that Eliza was keeping him alive so he could you know, hold on or something. I don't know I don't if know. it's. <laughs> yeah. I don't. And that is one transition that I didn't like. And I wondered what was cut out of the mm. manuscript because moments before, I would say mere paragraphs before, his father was talking to another person about not despairing and not giving up. Yeah. And then he all of a sudden, and so I thought, what a weird transition. Where is this coming from? Unless he felt that despair all along and was just like trying to get him to hope, you know, and, and then he just, he just couldn't do it. Was he holding on for him? Ooh, that's interesting. I guess they were they at the end. Could he tell they were at the end? Well, let's see. So the, the incident you're talking about him is to this man named Meyer or Mir, M-E-I-R, Katz. Yeah. And that's where, because he's like, Meyer's like, you know, I can't go on. And he's the one who stays on the train. And that's when they arrive in Buchenwald. And then, um, uh, let's see. And then, and then, yeah, right, right then, um, he, uh, Right then is where he starts saying it. I can't anymore. It's over. I shall die right here. So I yeah. don't know if he is going in and out of sort of a lucid state or if he, cause he is very sick at this point. He's dying of dysentery. Mm-hmm. So maybe he, um, maybe that was one moment where he was more lucid than usual. And, and, and that's where he says like, you know, I, uh, knew that I was no longer arguing with him, but with death itself. You know, that he's keeping his father alive, too. So, um, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't even know the answer to my own question. Here. <laughs> Could, 
No, it's hard because it's it's honestly a- a- asking, you know, when do you give up? You know, when are these circumstances so dour that there's just no point? And it could be, I guess, because he's so sick. But then I'm thinking about the son and his foot. Mm-hmm. He's had to deal with all that stuff, too. I I don't know. I, I If there had been some foreknowledge that, you know, this is the end... <laughs> and and I've I've made it um, and that, you know, we've yeah. made it together and, and now we'll go off and you'll be OK. So then I could totally see that. But I think there was still mm-hmm. doubt about, you know, where are they being led? And there were, of course, the rumors that the Russians were were pushing mm-hmm. forward. But I, I don't know. I think it's just one of those unanswerables that he held on as long as he could, but his body couldn't take it. I don't know if there's necessarily any significance but you know looking looking just at the i guess the structure of the whole thing he did hold on until the very end and so perhaps you know it's one of those things where you could say that you know god was there and he he kept him alive until the moment where his son didn't need him as much because salvation was on the horizon but yeah true although it was still a few months away and he goes through those few months very quickly because he is essentially an automaton at that point i think is the word i used he was (laughs) there's a there's a stripping away of what's left of his sense of personal sense of humanity um in that now i only think of food you know and he's not an animal but he it's just that 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 lifelessness is in him. And that's where we get to the end there. Yeah. Yeah. His father, I mean, survives at least two death Mm -hmm. sentences. There was the one where he was running and they actually wrote Mm -hmm. his name down and then something happened. I think they removed. And then the other Mm -hmm. time where he was shifted off to the left, which I actually find, I don't know if it probably isn't. I find that a humorous scene just because how he writes it is, he ran over to his father and it caused yeah. such like confusion because the, the soldiers yeah. came over. And so I'm just imagining this, that several people were able to leave the left side and go. Yeah, to the they right were. Side. So he is able, I mean, he escapes death a couple times and maybe it was yeah. just, that yeah. was it. And it just, yeah. And, and you, you, I don't know. I, I always feel for him in those things because again, the, the, the whole relationship between the two of them, um, yeah, and we're coming up at the end here. We, we have talked about the ending already, and, and, and I have mentioned the other thing. It's just something that always strikes me, and I always pointed out to students when I would teach it, was the way that the, that there are mirrors in this book. Um, uh, so just to, just to sum up a little bit of it, the, di- the deport, first of all, the deportation, the deportation from Saget kind of mirrors Exodus in a slightly ironic way, you know, like, there is a there. I I get a I get a uh, a you know leaving Egypt sort of of way. I think that's probably deliberate on his part. Um, it, even if it's ironic, because they're not going to freedom, they're going to you know they're going from freedom. So he's but but the whole idea that like you know when they come across. Um, you know, people's abandoned houses, they were trying to let bread rise and like, you know, all those things. So it's like, oh, I see where you're going with here. Um, 
and uh, but the evacuation from Auschwitz to Buchenwald mirrors the the deportations again. You know, like they they make them clean up or they you know they they clean etc. The they make them stand around. Um, there's a possible chance to be rescued. There's a person asking for a family member. Uh, there are people screaming, and there's you know horrific of instances of people you know being beaten down and dying. Um, but what between those two voyage journeys, what has changed, obviously and not so obviously, and why set up the narrative structure like this? Because you know he had to have shown that deliberately in a way that's so stark. Well, I, I, I guess with – I'll focus on the Exodus one. I don't know that I can necessarily okay. – I, I don't know that I have an answer on the second one. But the Exodus one, I think we're, we're, we get back to the absence of God again or at least the perceived absence of it and that there is a connection there. So, yes, you're correct that you know they're not going towards no. freedom – um, but the opposite, unfortunately, with captivity. And so it's almost like a reverse exodus. But in exodus, they're, you know, together wandering the, the desert. And it just becomes so desperate because they think God has left them. And then, you know, they kind of forget about him and all of that stuff. So there, there's I think there are those moments, though. It seems like um, and I'm sure there are more, but you've got almost our our author and i keep calling him that because i just don't want to yeah, yeah, yeah. mispronouncing his name so please forgive me but our author i think represents sort of those uh the jews mm. that were starting to you know let's find an idol but you know and and do all this and we're we're without god so where is he we should have just stayed in egypt kind mm-hmm. of situation which i guess you know they could have we should have just listened to those people when we had a chance so they're there, there is that instance as well. But then you have the the faithful that are still um, trying to say he's still there, even though we don't see him for forty years. Uh, so I think that's probably as. And there's salvation at the end, though. Some people had to. I was gonna say had to die. Some people died, and were unable to see that, which is what happened. Mm-hmm. Moses was unable to see the promised land, so. I, yeah, there are some connections there for sure, and then the the reversal. So it's it's almost like a macabre mm-hmm. exodus. No, it is. Yeah. <laughs> the other one, I I don't have an I, answer to. I think that, that it's just. I mean, aside from the obvious that it's more cruel and it's more dire. You know, the death march is you know to the train station and thing to the train station in Glivitz and stuff like that. Um, it's it's a a way for showing just like you know how determinedly cruel the Nazis, the SS were, that they were not going to let these people just remain there and get freed, you know, that they were going to abuse them to the end. Mm -hmm. And it's stripping away their humanity even more. We're like, it was almost like they did one level of it when they deported them all from their towns and processed them. And now it's just taking away what's left, you know, and it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And, and it's, uh, you know, um, and, and it sets up this this uh, very empty feeling, this very raw feeling at the end. So, um, but I I noticed that, and I, I thought it was um, 
I don't know. I just thought it was appropriate or just, it, I think it was a way, I think it also is structuring like that is a, helps us picture it too, you know, because we're familiar with that parallel structure there. We, we, we see that, um, even if we don't consciously pick up on it so we can, we can follow, Oh, this is like the last time and, but it's worse now. And, and so I think that allows the reader to stay engaged with it because they have really felt as beaten down as he has at this point too. Um, but yeah, like I, I don't want to say I like the feeling that I'm left with after reading this book, but the last sentence of the book stays with me and I can very much appreciate that because of the way it does, because it makes me think of all the things he's gone through and it doesn't wrap it up in a bow and it makes me think back and it makes me think over it again and it makes me want to learn more and see more and understand more in a way that some nicely written conclusion doesn't um do you agree with what i'm saying there about how the book actually literally ends yeah no i i think it's rather haunting i i think i feel like he, as well as probably many other people that went through that similar experience, especially with the faith, part of him mm-hmm. died. Honestly. And, you know, so I, I feel like it's a literal, I'm, I'm sure, you know, given I've seen images of the people once they were rescued and what they looked like. So you've got the literal looking at mm-hmm. a corpse. And then I, I honestly, he's gone through, he has died, he has experienced death in, in all its forms. And so looking at that as well. And yeah, I think it's, it's meant to be as haunting as yeah. it is. It shouldn't be wrapped up nicely in a bow. Um, even though their experience there ended, I think it's something that they carried with them forever, just like the tattoos on their arms. So. Yeah, and I don't know. I wonder how it bridges into. Did you call it? It was a dawn, dawn and day dawn and were then, the other two. Yeah, so I wonder how it bridges. Yeah, into I, those. I I have to. Um, those are ones that I might check out and see what he, you know. And he's like, he's got there are other novels and works and stuff. Um, one I another one I read was called The Gates of the Forest, and I read it a long time ago, and I don't remember it very well, so I have to read it again. Um, yeah. Well, and I, and I think of too that there are. People even are, you know, our ages who have parents, grandparents, and they can, they even can talk about, um, having family members who would or would not talk about this, um, or how they have family members who can talk I and mean, just list the number of people who are no longer there, you know, like an entire generation of this, of, of, of Jews in Eastern Europe was, almost completely wiped out you know six million people is you know and 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 you know among the other victims of the holocaust as well and and people can point to an entire branches of their family tree that are no longer there because of the because of the gas chambers you know so i think that's the other thing that this leaves us with so it's kind of uh it's kind of a dumb question to ask if this is required reading because i both think we both have said that yes and i would because I, I would say yes, and I think you need to keep studying from there. I think you really need to understand what this is because of the whole idea of bearing witness. I mean, I'm going to assume you would agree with me, but I don't want to speak for you. 
Oh, no, absolutely. And I was thinking about this question when I even started that I don't know what age you have this discussion, but I feel like as a parent, your responsibility is probably also to be telling your children about this before, you know, outside of school so that if they don't study it in school or they don't do it sufficiently, there's still knowledge mm-hmm. of it because, you know, we're, we're, yeah, we, we can't forget about this. And, uh, I, I think that I have seen, I feel like we're forgetting about mm-hmm. things, you know, I feel like we're forgetting about, uh, no, I don't want to compare. I'm just saying as an example that people maybe we're forgetting about 9-11, like that kind of stuff, because these kids now are born mm-hmm. after it. And so I think it's our responsibility to also bear witness and, and to use that. So I think it's required reading inside and outside of the classroom. And it's interesting. I was thinking, oh, we did the reader. Isn't mm-hmm. that interesting? We did yeah, it on the flip yeah. side <laughs> of what that would be like. And, you know, you brought up a point that, um, you know, he's, he was mm-hmm. a kid. He was a kid when he was going through that. And so I think, um, the faith question is huge because he wasn't fully formed. And so to have your faith so attacked, I think it would be easier potentially for somebody, even though he was advanced placement. <laughs> yeah. Um, as, as you said, yeah, advanced yeah. studies, I think you said. But if you are looking for someone who is more well formed in their faith and, uh, held on to it, certainly, within the the similar struggles uh i would recommend the hiding place by okay. cory ten boom um so you've just got varied experiences yeah. of course yeah. and and i liked that your i liked your analogy here to 911 i don't think it's inappropriate because what happens with events like this a 911 the kennedy assassination the civil war slavery they become, like yeah. I said, they're ab- they become abstract and they become, they become answers on a test. And, and in the case of things like 9-11 and the Holocaust, they become this big thing that happened, yet that nobody really talks about. So we understand it's really, really important, but our parents aren't really talking to us about why. And we have to, and, and how do we learn through about it? We learn it through either in school where it might not be taught very well or be very vague or be, or be subjective in a way that is not constructive. Or we learn it from sources that are not reliable, like the internet, you know? And there's good stuff out there on, on, on the Holocaust and on other, you know, on other atrocities and other events in the world on the internet. But, you know, hopefully we're teaching our kids to understand, like, how to access them and how to read them and how to understand them because we really you're right we really do you do really do need to talk to your sit down to talk to your kids about about a number of things in history and the holocaust is one of them because you need to understand and you need to be real with them too i mean at certain ages there's an appropriateness of um content right i'm not going to tell a six-year-old about you know gas chambers um you know or show them the pictures but at the same mm-hmm. time they need to know. They need to know the capability for cruelty that people have and not just have it be the thing in the same way that we need to know what exactly happened and the why behind it as well. Like I said, I, I would point out anti-Semitism in Europe for 
hundreds and hundreds of years prior to the 1930s and show them the propaganda and the fact that this idea that Jews were less than to a lot of the people living in these countries was a second nature type of thought they never really gave it but you know it was it was so much the other and they 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 took advantage of of the uh, the xenophobia and the anti-semitism that exists that that was there among the populace anyway so you know again have that that's where you have the conversation about why people would treat why people would be allowed to be led like this you know because there were a lot of people who condoned this you know so so yeah i think i think and i think this is an outstanding gateway to the to the realness of this. So, um, do you speak from experience of learning about it? Well, because you're a parent. Um, yeah, we've had a couple of conversations about some stuff. I have a feeling we are going to in the, um, in the future as my son learns a little bit more and more. Um, I think we've probably had more conversations about things like slavery and civil rights than we have had about the Holocaust though. I will be completely honest with you. Mm. So. Yeah. Well, it's so pertinent yeah. now just with what our yeah, city yeah. And it's also, <laughs> has gone through as well as, yeah, as our yeah. country. So I yeah. can totally yeah, it's understand more, And it's that. more germane to, you know, I mean, not that this isn't American history in any way, but, you know, it's, yeah, it, you're right. It is more local, <laughs> so to speak. So, yeah. yeah. All right. So we do have a couple of Facebook comments, and Stella is going to read the one from Robert Ward, our Scholastic Book Buddy, and I will handle the other one. Okay. I previously said... I think he's talking about the Catcher in the Rye. Okay. I previously said that I wasn't going to read it along for the episode and would base my decision if I should revisit on your episode. I'm not completely convinced, <laughs> but I will follow the book under a possible revisit at some point. I can't say I'm in a rush, but the episode gave me enough to think about. All right. We have we actually also have a we have a Twitter reply. Um Sean from the <gasps> Yeah, Sean from the uh that. from the Secret Wars and Beyond podcast uh, said, great show. You hit on the fact that Holden isn't a bad kid. He's a sad one. I had this book in my curriculum for years. So fellow English teacher, by the way, and felt sadder for Holden with each reread. The book really sang for my kids, though. At the end of the year, they would always vote to keep it in the rotation. So... She also he also said excited to listen or whatever tweets are so phony. So, <laughs> and then Mary Kennedy's just said uh, got onto uh, the required reading Facebook page and said just want to thank you for this episode in your podcast. I'm working from home at a really tedious job and you guys are getting me through the days. I'm a former English major working in banking. You guys are my people, and I just wanted to put that in there because I really appreciated that. It's it's very nice to hear things like that. Yeah. So um, thank you for stick. We're we are the reaching people. the people. Yay. Thank you for <laughs> sticking with us through this. I know this is a very heavy topic and a very heavy uh, episode, but um, I, Stella, I really appreciate yeah. you having this conversation with me because I really en- <gasps> it, it, as, it enjoyed this as much as you possibly can. It, it really felt worth our yes. while here. Yeah. It's good to have tough conversations. Yeah. I was just talking about that with some friends that, you know, we – don't have you and I apart from this podcast do not have a surface level mm-hmm. relationship and we are it because of that because we have a deeper relationship we're yeah. able to talk about tough things and and these are things that need yeah. to be discussed yeah. 
But we are going to be discussing another book in the next episode, so you really do have to, yeah, you, you have to sure tell us what are. that is. So what are we reading for next time? <laughs> it's a surprise. What? Oh, would that be Extemporaneous podcasting. <laughs> we just start. Yeah, I'm like, okay, Tom, we're going to talk about this and see what happens. Yeah, so I was kind of scratching my head. I've decided it's lighter and also not lighter at the same time. I've decided, but it is talking about a different people Uh group. (sighs) The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime by Mark Hayden. Oh, cool. All right. Yes. Well, you can come back in about a month for that. Um, In the meantime, in in the meantime, um, you know, check us out on Twitter, Facebook. And um, hit us up in an email, review us, and um, thank you, as always, uh, for listening, and take care. And be sure to promote information. So go to the Holocaust Museum, go to Holocaust, um, the website that Tom was talking about, and Never forget, yes, never basically. forget. Uh, USHMM.org, I believe, is the, is the website, and it is an outstanding resource for study. And um, you will uh, you will not regret a visit there, and you will not regret reading this. So uh, take care and good night. Goodbye. For listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true that's two true If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.